Welcome to Grace and Glory Audio, featuring Pastor P.G. Matthew. Today, Pastor Matthew continues in the Bible series in the book of 1 John with this message entitled, The Word of Life, preached December the 3rd, 2000. Let's turn to 1 John chapter 1, 1 through 4. The Word of Life, speaking about the personal Word, the revelation of God by whom God has given us the final word. St. John, in his epistles, speaks particularly about the pre-existent, eternal Son, the Word of God, the Word of life, becoming man, that he may give eternal life to dead men. You remember the heretics. They did not confess the truth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Whether Docetists or followers of the Ephesian Serinthus, the heretics believed that matter was evil. And therefore, the eternal divine Christ, the Son of God, could not have taken upon himself an evil material body. So the first heresy that we recognize in the church was the denial of the humanity of Jesus Christ. So they denied salvation through the death of Jesus Christ. They denied the resurrection of Christ's body and therefore our resurrection. These Gnostics preached a salvation by speculation. They did not need a savior. They believed in self-salvation. They did not need a savior to atone for their sins. Let me say right now, all heresies oppose particularly and especially the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth. So St. John writes his epistles to oppose these errorists and to instruct and edify the true people of God. So when you look at the first chapter of the first epistle, you notice St. John plunges into the theme of his epistle. Without giving us the usual formalities of an epistle, such as the identity of the author, or the identity of the recipients, or the greetings to the recipients, he immediately calls attention, attention of the believers under his oversight, to the person of Jesus Christ the truth which was under assault. So the first thing we look at is the first thing that St. John addresses. The eternal, pre-existent Son of God. Ho en aparkes. Verse 1 speaks of the object of the main verb 
found in verse 3, which is, Apangelomen, we proclaim. We proclaim what? And that what is expressed in verse 1. And verse 2 is a further explanation of the what. And verse 3, the first part speaks about the apostolic proclamation of the gospel. And verse 3, latter part, and verse 4 tells us about the purpose for the proclamation as well as for the writing of this epistle. So what is the object of the apostolic proclamation? That which was from the beginning. Which we have seen. Which we have heard. Which we have seen. Which we have looked at. Which our hands handled. That which was from the beginning. That which was existing from the beginning. That which did not come to be was always existing. He speaks about things concerning the one who was existing from eternity past. As in Genesis 1 and John 1, 1, beginning here has to do with eternity past before creation. In other words, he is speaking about things concerning the distinct person who was existing in active fellowship with the Father from all eternity. Verse 2, the latter part says, which was pronton patera, which was in active fellowship with the Father. So there is distinction of person. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The object of the apostolic proclamation has to do with things concerning the pre-existent eternal son of God. Who was in face-to-face communion with the Father from all eternity. There was no time when this eternal one was not. He is the son of eternal generation. So the keynote is struck against the heretics. Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity. He is the life, the eternal life. He is the personal word of life. The word of life is the revelation of the unseen God. See, this is exactly what the heretics deny. That the eternal God cannot link himself with human flesh. He's dealing with the heretics in this first verse. He's the word of life. Word means revelation. That's why you have to be very careful. Your word is you. And 
When you speak a word, it is your being. And when you don't keep that word, you are saying you are contradictory. Jesus Christ is the revelation of God. The unseen God made visible to us. As word, he reveals the Father. And by this word, we are told, the Lord made the heavens and the earth. Psalm 33 and verse 6. Through this logos, all things were made. John said that in his prologue to the gospel. In fact, John calls him in Revelation 19 and verse 13 as the word of God. St. John strikes at the very heart of the heretics by a positive affirmation of the truth regarding the eternal pre-existent Son of God, the life, the word of life, the eternal life. That's the first point you need to know. Secondly, this pre-existent Eternal word, divine son of God, manifested himself in history. So the second point is the historical manifestation of this eternal son of God. In the fullness of time, the eternal entered time. The son became man. He entered into history as the revealer of God. God who desired to give life to the dead through the death of his one and only son. And so we read, Kai Hezowe and the life was manifested. And again, Kai Hemin, and he appeared to us, to the apostles. And the life was manifested to us, to the apostles. No man could find God by his own effort. So this idea of manifestation tells us God has taken initiative for revealing himself to us in Jesus Christ. That we may come to have eternal life. How can sinful and finite man reach him? The infinite and all holy God who dwells in unapproachable light. But God took the initiative to reveal himself to us. When his son took upon himself human flesh. Human nature. Without Satan. Incarnation is the manifestation of God to us in the flesh. The unseen is now seen. The invisible is now visible. So man can see him, hear him, even touch him. This manifestation speaks of the virgin conception. Gestation, birth, life, death on the cross, the burial, 
the resurrection and the ascension of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All this is involved in that word appeared, manifested. The God who came seeking Adam, a sinner, came in Jesus Christ to seek us sinners and save us from our sins. The Son took upon himself human nature forever. The person, St. John is saying this, the person who was manifest in human flesh was the one who existed in eternity past in face-to-face fellowship with the Father in heaven. Thus, the Son of God appeared in history, in flesh and sarki, in flesh. What is the purpose? To destroy the devil. Chapter 3, verse 8. To take away our sins. Chapter 3, verse 5. By his death. And in 4 verse 10 we read, This is love, not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is the one, St. John says, who came by water and blood, that is by baptism and by his death on the cross, which the heretics denied. He is saying he was truly human. And truly pre-existent, eternal Son of God. So John tells us, O every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, is from God. This is the test of authentic church and authentic Christianity. Will you confess that Jesus of Nazareth is the eternal God? St. John already stated this in the prologue to his gospel. The eternal word who is God became flesh and dwelt among us. The eternal became historical. The eternal appeared in time. And manifested to us, revealed to us, to us humans, sinful human beings. And this manifestation was for the specific purpose that we may come to have eternal life and eternal salvation. In other words, outside of Jesus Christ. There is no life, there is no salvation, there is no hope. The third thing he says is the apostolic verification of this manifestation. We proclaim what we have experienced in history and what we verified with our senses of hearing and seeing and touching. And John is telling us we did not make up our message. It is not the result of hallucination or speculation. And so we are told 
that which was from the beginning, that which we have heard. Akeko Amen in the perfect tense. From Akuo means to hear. Perfect tense in the Greek means this. It speaks about an action that took place in the past, but the effect continues to the present. We proclaim to you what we have heard. 75-year-old St. John not only heard the words of Jesus Christ, in the past, but he is saying, by the use of this Greek perfect tense, he, he is saying, it is still ringing in my ears. And what we have seen, eora coming from horao, again in the perfect tense. What we apostles have seen in the past, but... What we have seen is etched in the eyes of our mind as the image is captured in the film by a camera. We saw him and we still see him. And then he says what we have looked at in the Aristens. Aristens emphasizes that particular act. What we have looked at from teaomai, there are many words in Greek to look, blepo, horavo, teaomai. What this word means, what we discern. Our look was a look of scrutiny. The same word is used, we beheld his glory. In other words, these apostles were given ability to penetrate into the inner reality of this person, and they saw glory. What we have heard, what we have seen, what we have scrutinized, looked at with our intelligence to understand, and not only that, what we have touched. Epsela fesan from Tsela Favo, which means to touch, to make certain. It has to do with purposeful taking hold of Jesus Christ for closer examination of its material reality. And this is particularly speaking about the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ. Let's turn to the 24th chapter of the book of Acts, where this word is used, touch, tell of how. 24th chapter of Luke and verse 39. Look at my hands and to my feet. Jesus Christ is speaking after his resurrection. Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch and see. Verify. See, these, these are many infallible proofs that Jesus Christ gave to his apostles concerning his resurrection. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. 
what we have heard, what we have seen, what we have scrutinized, what we have taken hold of and touched to make certain of the material reality of this one. Or oh, turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. And verse 25 and following, So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my hand into his side to examine, to make certain, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe, Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. The 70-year-old or 75-year-old St. John still hears the words of Jesus in his ears, still see him in his mind's eyes. He remembers how he scrutinized him and how he grasped him and touched him to ensure the material reality, especially of his resurrection body. The apostles thus established the material reality of the eternal Son of God. The apostles were eyewitnesses of this historic manifestation of the eternal Son of God. In fact, that word seen is used three times in this introduction. The fourth thing. The apostolic proclamation. You see, they are proclaiming, they are preaching. They are declaring what? What they verify. What they witnessed. And so two words are used, martureo to testify and apangelo to proclaim. Now you cannot be a witness unless you saw it with your eyes. And I witness bear witness to the truth. And the apostles were eyewitnesses of this incarnational life of our Lord Jesus Christ, including the resurrection body of Christ. So they are qualified to bear witness to Jesus Christ. And Professor Bultmann is right that these people are able to give legal testimony because they were eyewitnesses. Turn with me to what St. Peter says in Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. He says, we did not follow cleverly invented stories. That's what the heretics do. That's what the Gnostics do. It is all coming from here somewhere. It has nothing to do with the revelation from God. All heresies are, are of human origin with the great assist from the devil. We did not 
follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. You didn't make it up. Or turn with me to Acts chapter 1 and verse 20. 21 and 22, therefore it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. You have to be eyewitness to bear witness. To give legal a binding testimony. Acts chapter 4 and verse 20. Beginning with verse 18. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied. Judge for yourselves. Whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. And now. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. In other words, these people, apostles, are qualified to give legal testimony to this historic manifestation of the eternal God. These are the people who are qualified to give testimony to the life of Jesus Christ. In other words, the apostolic witness is true because they were eyewitnesses. He appeared to us. And not only that, they are eyewitnesses. We are told we proclaim the message. The word apangelomen has to do with proclaim the message with authority, with commission, with appointment from him who is the eternal son of God who became man, who called us and commissioned us. In other words, we are not speaking and proclaiming based on our authority. We declare this with the authority of Jesus Christ. The apostles are not philosophers who proclaim their latest speculation. They are authorized agents of Christ. They are called and appointed by Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to declare with authority what they have seen and heard the message concerning the incarnate Christ. They are eyewitnesses. They are ambassadors. They are apostles. And so... In 1 John 4 and verse 14, John says this, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son, what is it, to be the Savior of the world. Savior of the world. In other words, we proclaim to you, we do not monopolize. We were dead in trespasses and sins, and this one gave us life. And we cannot help but proclaim. We must declare. We must proclaim this one who alone is the savior of the world. And if anyone will not proclaim and evangelize. 
is disobedient to God. The apostles were beneficiaries of this message. They received eternal life through this message. They have now fellowship with the Father and the Son. And they have a responsibility to the world. They must share this authoritative message. They must share this gospel. They must evangelize so, so others might come to have life in the Son. And it was the express commission of the one who received all authority in heaven and on earth. So John says in Revelation 22, 17, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. Anyone who hears the gospel and believes in the gospel has a responsibility right away to say, Come to this Savior of the world. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. So we cannot and we must not monopolize the gospel. We must evangelize. We are debtors. The gospel alone is the power of God and the salvation. Woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. And everyone who drinks savingly from this water of life becomes a channel of the water of life. So Isaiah tells us in the 52nd chapter and verse 7 how beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. That is evangelism. Good news Peace, good tidings, salvation, proclamation of the kingdom of God, your God reigns. And faith comes by hearing. Hearing this message regarding the eternal Son of God who became man and who accomplished atonement for us on the cross and rose from the dead that ascended into the heavens. The one who is the word of life is able to give you life. That's what it is. There is no other gospel. There is no other good news. Faith comes by hearing and everyone in faith calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Number five, not only they proclaim the oral proclamation, but we are told in verse four, graphomen, we write these things. They were also authorized to write the apostles also wrote down the message for generations to come. And what we read in the scripture is the eyewitness report. It is the truth. What we have heard and what we have seen, what we have scrutinized, what with our own hands, what we grasped and touched and made certain, we write it down. And so we believe all scripture is God-breathed and the apostolic writings are God-breathed and is profitable. It's a message of salvation first and it is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. How many times you look at the mirror a day? 
It is the vanity of human beings. We look at the mirror several times a day. And yet we refuse to look at the mirror of God's word. Not only to see what is wrong with us, but to see God and to receive hope and peace and salvation from him. That's why he says we write this down. Number six, what do you think is the purpose of this proclamation of the gospel? The purpose is revealed. That you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. Fellowship calls for some common interests. We must have something in common to have fellowship with one another. We must have something in common to have fellowship with God and his son. The heretics claimed that they had fellowship with God. But they split from the apostolic community and from the apostolic message and maintained that they have fellowship with God. And St. John tells us it is an utter impossibility. Your fellowship with God and the Son is proven by your fellowship with the apostolic community and your confession of the apostolic gospel. The word fellowship appears first in the book of Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. Then comes fellowship. You can have no fellowship when Jesus Christ is not confessed as God became man and suffered for us on the cross and raised from the dead and is Lord of all. True fellowship with God is impossible without fellowship in the apostolic doctrine and the apostolic community, the true church. So he says the purpose of this authoritative proclamation by the apostles concerning Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who manifested in history, is to result in fellowship with the Father and the Son and fellowship with the apostolic church. Let me tell you, one cannot have the Father without the Son. It is an utter impossibility to have the Father without the Son. You know the Father through the Son. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And one cannot have the Son without the apostolic message. There, there it is. You cannot have the Father without the Son, and you cannot have the Son without the apostolic eyewitness declaration of truth. So through the message of the gospel, the Johannine community maintains fellowship with the apostle. And he is writing to these people, I don't want you to go off as they went out from among us. I'm writing this to you that you may maintain koinonia. That's the first purpose. That you may continue to fellowship with us as well as that people may come to have this fellowship afresh. Sin separates us from enjoying fellowship with God and his son. 
Jesus Christ was sent by the Father from heaven into this world to take away this one thing that is a barrier to fellowship, which is our sin. The guilt of our sin. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God cannot have fellowship with man. And so God took the initiative in sending his son. And he died in our place. He destroyed the work of the devil. He took away our sins by his death. He is our atoning sacrifice. And St. John tells us, the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all our sin. Now fellowship is possible. God gives us eternal life in Jesus Christ. He gives us divine nature. We are born of God. We are children of God. We have things in common with God. God's interest is ours. God's plan is ours. His will is ours. We think his thoughts. We desire his desires. I'm the vine. You are the branches. Jesus said, I'm in you and you are in me. There is serious communion. Serious sharing. Serious fellowship. Because we have his life in us. All because of the eternal son of God became man. Let me tell you. There are two kinds of fellowships. One is this authentic apostolic community that has fellowship with God and fellowship with the true church. And the other is the fellowship as children of the devil. Turn with me to chapter 5 of 1 John and verse 19. Take a look at it. For today we have this idea, you know, let's be all nice. And let's show everybody how nice we are by accepting people into the church who violently disagree with you. Let us have various and diverse ideas prevail so we can tell everybody how great and loving we are. It is straight from the pit. It has nothing to do with Christianity. Christian fellowship is based on apostolic doctrine, particularly about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so, look at 1 John 5 verse 19, we know that we are children of God, and what? And that the whole world is under the authority and control of the evil one. There are only two people There are only two communities. There are only two fellowships. One is the fellowship with God and his church. And the other is fellowship with the devil and the world. And if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, who is the word of life, the life, the eternal life, who came into this world that you may have life, then your fellowship is with the devil and not with God. Let me tell you, true Christian fellowship is exclusive. It is the fellowship of the children of God who confess the apostolic doctrine regarding Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That the Eternal One took upon himself human nature yet without sin. And he took upon him this human nature forever. And in this human nature he died. And he was raised up without suffering corruption. He was raised up. With a physical, fleshly body verified by the apostolic witnesses. 
And if you don't believe in that, you cannot be saved. Today we don't have any time to talk about doctrine. Let us pray. Let's not bring in any issue that causes people to be unhappy and miserable. Let us all pray. No, no, no. That's a demonic assembly. That's a demonic church. The true church confesses the true doctrine. It is exclusive fellowship. The true church has no fellowship with anyone who rejects the apostolic message. Let's turn into 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Let me read to you something that St. Paul is telling us. Chapter 6 and beginning with verse 14. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common. Here is the heart of fellowship. For what fellowship can light have with darkness? None. What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Nothing. That doesn't mean we get out of the world and all that. No, I'm t talking about true fellowship. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? We are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord. Let me tell you a few more things. The next purpose is that our joy may be filled to the full. Hallelujah. Jesus Christ brings about fellowship with God and with his church. And the final purpose is that our joy may be filled to the brim and overflowing. The apostolic message produces fellowship with the Father and the Son and with his children in the true church. This true fellowship results in joy. Joy for the apostles and succeeding generations of the preachers of the gospel. St. John says, this is my joy when I hear my children are walking in truth. I am filled with joy. When the hearers of the gospel walk in truth, the preacher rejoices. Let me tell you, if you want to make me happy and walk in the truth. What is truth? According to St. John, the truth is the eternal Son of God, the life, the word of life, the eternal life became incarnate that we might have eternal life through him. That's the truth. You don't want to take time for definition. Oh, well, just say something. No, we cannot say something. This Jesus Christ is the eternal God. Who died and rose again for us. He came to give us life. The life in this world is mere existence. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it is a living death. The gospel offers the gift of eternal life. What is eternal life? It is unlike any other life that we know. It is unending life. And it is all glorious life. There is no sin, no guilt, no sickness, no pain, no tears, no sorrow. 
it is dwelling with God. In a new heaven, new earth, it is therefore joy unspeakable and full of glory. It's communion with God in his presence is the fullness of joy and on his right hand pleasures forevermore. It is the joy to the apostles and the ministers of the gospel. When people hear and do the truth, it is joy to those who hear and believe the gospel also. St. John says in John chapter 4, the sower and the reaper together are glad. I'm writing this that your joy or joy may be full. Ours may be full. And I would say yours also may be full. It is the fullness of joy. It is the ultimate joy. It is the joy of Jesus. It is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is therefore never-ending joy. Now here we experience this joy in the midst of sorrow and tears. But there is a day coming when we shall have joy to the fullest without tears, without sorrow, without suffering, without pain. And it all comes from Jesus Christ. The purpose of Christmas, the purpose of the incarnation of the eternal Son of God is that we may receive eternal life, that we may have fellowship with the Father and the Son, that we may have fellowship with all the true children of God, and finally, that we may have fullness of joy forevermore on the last day that will never end. Heavenly Father, we pray that you have mercy upon us. Help us to examine the foundation of our faith. To make sure that we believe in this pre-existent eternal son of God who became man, who died and rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. He appeared to many, ascended into the heavens and he sits on the right hand of God the Father. He is Lord of all and he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. In him thank you, O God, for fellowship. For joy.